Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First application in the list is Parley, or as people actually usually say it around, at least where, where I am, is Parley. It's interesting because I think Parley, par, parley is just the, the French version of Parley. I've never heard anyone actually say Parley. Anyway, Parley, Parley, whatever it is, it is a vocabulary appropriately enough. It's an application to help you learn words in a language that is not your own. Or I guess you could use it to word to, to use to to learn new words in your own language. I don't know, but I think you know. I think what it's really meant for is to teach you words from a different language other than your own. And when you first launch, so yes, we've already talked about an application that kind of does this. There was one that was like a flashcard sort of application, and another, I think, yet another that that no, I think those were the same ones. I, one or two other. Uh, applications do this and, and in fact all of those applications this group of applications uses the same format the what is it vtml or kvtml something like that so it, it's it's a vocabulary markup language that is queued up for a kind of question and answer session and that's what this application does. I, I honestly am not very clear on how this application differentiates itself from the other applications that are similar to this. I, I, it might just be a matter of taste. Either way, to get started, when you, when you launch the application, it, it comes up with a, 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 a mysteriously sort of blank screen with a color swatch, uh, a line of color swatches at the top. I don't know what those rec- uh, represent. They're, they're not... Uh, clickable. I mean, they're clickable. You can click on them, but nothing happens when you click on them. And then it asks you to either create a new collection, open an existing collection, or download new collections. Every time I tried to download new collections, it failed. I, I could see the the list of collection uh, of of vocabulary collections, but when I clicked install, it 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 claimed that the the mirror closest to me was unreachable and therefore it was unable to 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 complete that that request so that that was a a poor start um what i ended up doing was i followed i think from the handbook of this application the par- parlay uh handbook re- referenced the store.kde.com org yeah store.kde.org and you can go there and find possibly some parlay vocabulary files you kind of have to search around for them you eventually can find some click the download uh, link to get the yeah kvtml file save that somewhere to your hard drive and then once that exists so i'm saving that to my hard drive and then once that exists go back to parlay parlay parley and um remove that one that was my old one create uh open an existing collection find the thing that you just downloaded so here's an i think an english to french vocabulary uh lesson and my first 
lesson group, I guess, is um, it's going to be words taken from a couple of different uh, lessons. One is in the kitchen, two is in the bathroom, in the living room, in the room, miscellaneous, luck, town life, g-brainy application, don't know what that is, line and suffix, ness, less, full, and cour. Uh, okay, cool, that's good. So it, it, you can do a couple of different practice modes. There's flashcards, mixed letters, multiple choice, written, example sentences, ginger of nouns, comparison forms, and conjugations. Uh, okay, let's do multiple choice then, and then start the practice. And so this says, uh, fourchette. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna guess that's a fork. Well, it didn't tell me that I was wrong, so I'm assuming that's probably correct. Let's do one that's, that's incorrect. Oh, well, here's, here's a good one. Radio. Or, no, that's the English word. Radio. Could it be one, radio, uh, or two, tapi, or, uh, three, you know, and so on. So I'll, I'll do, uh, four, ver. Um, no, that was incorrect. It was a radio. Okay, so that, that does, it highlights it, highlights your answer in red or pink or rose, uh, and highlights the correct one in, um, green or verde. Okay, so anyway, that's it. It, it goes through this, the, these lessons, and like I say, there are different kinds of practices, and now I see, actually, now that I've discovered that, I, did, I hadn't discovered that when I was, um, when I was testing this out earlier, I, I didn't know there were different modes of, of learning, so I think that's the way this application, I think, quite quite justifiably, I would say, um, differentiates itself from the other, the other, um, applications like this, because it can do flashcards, mixed letters, I don't know what that is, multiple choice, I just did that, written example sentences, and so on. So that, that's actually pretty nice. Um, in fact, I think having discovered those modes of learning, I, I, I think I'd probably use Parlay before I used um, the other flashcard one, whatever that was called. I've already forgotten it. So yeah, that's cool. Okay. Uh, the only, as I said, if you try to download a collection and it fails, then just go to KDE, uh, store.kde.org and look around for Parlay files. You do have to search specifically for Parlay files uh, up at the top, so so do that. And, and I don't know, th th there's not, I guess, quite as many as I would have expected, maybe. Um, so maybe that's an area for a community to be formed around it. This is obviously, Parlay is obviously part of the KEDU, the K-Education Group, so it's, um, it's a nice little homework type of application to help you with your studies. I think it's, could be really, really useful. Speaking from personal experience, I, I find that, that, that repetition certainly seems to help, um, but you know, even that, like, there's only so much, I guess, repetition you can do before, after a while, you just need to start speaking to people. And that's kind of where, where I tend to falter in my efforts to l actually learn a foreign language well enough to be conversant in it, is I don't converse enough in it to, to sort of retain the, the benefits I, I get from, from repeating vocabulary and, and so on. So, um, anyway, Parlay is, is, seems pretty nice. Um, that would actually, since everyone's talking about AI, that could be a useful thing for an AI, is to, to help people learn a new language. You know, because I always, I kind of, I frequently feel like if I am speaking to someone in a, in a different language, I always personally feel like I'm sort of being a burden on them as I speak my little 
child's you know vocabulary with horrible grammar and and just hoping that they understand what i'm saying and and uh, me hoping i understand what they say and so on it's it's it, it, it's tricky i don't know how people learn really learn a new language i think that's i i stand in awe of people who are conversant in more than one language i i, I should probably work at it harder honestly but like i say i think what i need to do really is engage with people who, who speak the, lang- the the target language that I'm trying to learn. And that's that's the part where I kind of start to falter. Okay, anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about Partition Manager. This is billed as the KDE Partition Manager, but but the, the package name and the, the item in the KDE application menu is just Partition Manager. This is a great application. If you've ever used Gparted, this could be considered in your head as Kparted. I mean, it is it is Gparted with it written in Qt, written with the KDE framework. So let's just make sure that there's not sort of like more to it that I that I don't know about Partition Manager. Um, no, there's not. It's um, a bunch of documentation files written in DocBook, by the way, and uh, the executable itself partition manager. So when you launch this, you will be prompted first for root password because it needs access to all of the devices attached to your system. Once that's finished, once it scans your system, finds all the devices, loads them all up, then you're left with a fairly standard sort of disk partitioning window. Uh, You know, you got your devices on the left, the details about those devices on the right. I will say that this is a more complex application than, for instance, GNOME Disks. GNOME Disks is one of those really, really simplified applications. And and normally, you know, I generally say that complexer is better because you can always ignore the stuff you don't need, blah, blah, blah. I think in this case, though, I, I think if I if you know if, if I had to choose a, 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 a an application to quickly format a hard drive, I, I I have to admit I would choose GNOME Disks. It's just a simple, arguably too simple for some. It is a simple application. And here's my thing about partitioning disks. The the thing about partitioning disks, formatting disks, is I believe sincerely deep down in my soul that it is a confusing thing to most people, even, I dare say, many power users. I mean, heck, even to me, really. I mean, yeah, I can talk to you about partition tables and labels and, and where the partition data is actually stored, and how to restore that if you accidentally demolish a partition. I, I know conceptually what inodes are, I understand that data is, is, is how data is stored in a file system so that it doesn't have to be like, like literally be contiguous bits and things like that. I get all of that in that that those con- concepts. And and I can even I mean I've I've done on this show I I'm pretty sure little experiments with with you know for for instance with DD to to s- r- roughly create a really really rudimentary file system or rather to not create a file system uh writing things directly to a block device and then reading it back in and just just looking at at where things begin and 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 end and defining the data that you get with a byte size and account and so on and of course I could you can take that further and say well I'm going to I'm going to write it directly and then I'm going to cat it back and and pipe it through od-a to 
translate all the characters into something that I can recognize and so on. So you could even put binary data on there and kind of get an idea of what it is. All that stuff is possible. I get it. I understand it. And and hard drives are still. I mean, and what I've just said is is super advanced conceptually to a lot of people. Like that that would have blown someone's mind. Like someone is just completely mystified by what I just said. And for me, that's like the base level. Like that's the that's like. The, I mean, it's not the base level. It's not like that's that's just what I know without even thinking about it. No, I mean like. After many years of, of puzzling over this stuff, that that's where I got. That's where I am, and that's probably as far as I'll ever get. So, formatting hard drives is difficult. It's a, it's a hard concept for a lot of people. To a lot of people, I'm talking about a lot of people, and you know this to be true, if they go to a store, to a computer store, and they say, I need a external hard drive for school, the first question they're asked by the salesperson is, do you need it for Mac or PC? Because everybody knows that hard drives only work with one or the other, right? Like, you, they, they, they come out of the factory, and some of them have apple-shaped platters, and others have circle platters, and, and you can't mix, you can't mix those two hard drives together, right? No, of course not, that's ridiculous. All hard drives are the same, it doesn't matter. But in the stores, they are marked one or the other. And, I mean, it used to be a joke that, that in order to get the cheaper hard drive, you go to the store, and you tell them that, you know, even if you're using a Mac, you tell them that you want a PC hard drive, because that one is going to be cheaper than the one with the special... Apple sticker on it, and then you just take that PC hard, that quote-unquote PC hard drive, that quote-unquote Windows PC hard drive, and you take it home and you do the magical disk utility thing that turns it into a Mac hard drive. It, it's magic, and and to a lot of people, all of that is like actual stuff. Like that's real. That's a real problem. You cannot go and buy the wrong hard drive because then it won't work with your computer. And they just don't realize that you can that you can format it. And then what does that even mean? Formatting a disk. What does that mean? Well, it actually means writing a file system to that disk. What's a file system? And and then you're back to the beginning where you have to describe what, what life would be like without a file system. Here's what file systems provide. And here's the file systems that your operating system understand. Here's the one that this other one understands. And here's the other one. And so on. It's a complex, complex issue. And then, and that's not even starting. That That isn't even talking about the partition thing, which is the, the the name of this application, KDE Partition Manager. We haven't even talked about what a partition is. And, and I mean, try explaining that to someone who's just learned that hard drives are not natively one or the other operating system and, and have things called file systems. And now you're trying to tell them that you can magically, theoretically split this hard drive into two sort of like kind of virtual drives and, and you could do these other things. It's just, it's impossible. And and then forget about trying to explain to people the different kinds of measurements that you could use. You could talk in megabytes or in gigabytes or in um, cylinders or or in in whatever else. So it's just it is a hard hard thing. And I think that the simpler, generally speaking, the better. So if I want to um, if I want to format a drive, I don't really want to have to right-click on the existing thing and then unmount it and then um, uh, create a new partition on it and then in that partition create a file system and and on and on. It's just easier, I think, if you plug in your little USB thumb drive, you click on the thing, and you click 
format or 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 partition or or whatever the the button is on GNOME Discs, which admittedly I haven't used in a while. But you know, it's 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 really easy on GNOME Discs. And in the KDE Partition Manager, it isn't that easy. It's 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 not hard. It's better than um, trying to remember the order of all the different options on uh, the parted the the terminal command uh, or or try, and then combining that you know and so you do that to make your partition and then you 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 figure out the size and it complains that your size is not aligned correctly and you have to figure out how to make it aligned correctly you end up using a percentage because you don't want to have to calculate things and you do that and then you have to use the mkfs the, the appropriate mkfs so there's a bunch of different ones of those. You have to figure out what the commands are for that. So this, I mean, this is just one of those things where, in my book, the having a GUI is such a, a huge benefit because you don't, unless you're, unless you do, you generally don't partition a hard drive every day. It's something that you do every three to five years when you get a new hard drive for your computer because the OS is updated and you decided it's time to, to, to freshen things up. Or you might do it on occasion, every now and again, when you go out to the store and get a USB thumb drive and you decide, for whatever reason, that you don't want it to be a, a FAT file system or XFAT or, or NFTS or whatever they come with these days. I don't even know. But you, you're not happy with that, so you pop it in your computer and you, you format it for yourself. So whatever, I keep saying format because that's what Mac OS called it. I, I guess it's really MKFS, right? I mean, that's that's what you're doing. You're you're partitioning the drive and then you're putting a file system on it. So you don't do that that often. So it, it is, I, I find it difficult to kind of really internalize the commands involved. And, and that's just the perfect, that is exactly the use case, in my opinion, for like, for a really good alias, which by the way, why haven't I set up a really good alias for myself for this, this whole process instead of complaining about it? Um, so I should do that, but I guess I don't have to because applications like KDE Partition Manager and GNOME Disks exist, and they're great. I mean, like I say, GNOME Disks is simpler, I think, than Partition Manager, but both of them are great. I would use them over the, the, the terminal commands any day to get the thing done quickly. So I just, I love this application, in other words. That's the long and short of it. I love it. I think it could be simpler. I think there could be a simpler mode or or maybe just a you know a quick format button or something like that. I, I think that could be nice. But but generally speaking, I just I think this application is is great. I, I do also love the amount of data it gives you in the left column. So uh, for a very long time, I was quite annoyed generally by computers um, that they just never really seemed to be able to identify a hard drive for you. And it's such an important thing, especially in a partition manager. It's such an important thing to be able to know exactly which hard drive you're about to to ruin. You're you're about to erase all the data on this thing. I really need to know that this is the, the the drive I think it is. I want as much identifying data as possible. I wish manufacturers would absolutely just burn that sort of information into the firmware so it would just be easily detected. I mean, obviously something's being detected somewhere, but but this is a nice this is a nice little list. Here I've got Samsung SSD 980 Pro 1TB 931.51 gigabytes slash dev slash NVMe 0N1. I know exactly which drive that is. I can tell you the day I bought it, practically. Maybe not 
to the exact date. But yeah, you know, I mean, this this was the hard drive. This was the NVMe drive, not surprisingly, that I purchased when Slackware 15 came out and when I was installing Slackware 15. That's the drive. I know where that is in my computer. I can I could open up my tower and and look at it at a moment's notice. Um, a Pacer, A S340, 120 gigabytes, Dev SDA. Okay, I'm going to admit I don't actually know which one that is. I don't have a great memory of 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 that one. I, I think that's a I think that's an SSD drive, an old SSD drive that I have in there, probably for SDA. I don't know what that is. Well, I'll have to figure that out sometime. Um, and then there's another SSD drive in Dev uh, SDB, and then a couple of puzzling ones, ST2000DM006 and ST33204, you know, but I mean, it's doing as much as it can, right? It's giving me as much data as it has. It gives me the size and the location on the file system. So if I need to, I can look either at LSBLK or if maybe I need to look at FS tab to see, um, not less, to see what, you know, what, what, uh, what mount point that is. So yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really great feature of this. I think that's gotten a lot better lately. Um, I mean, and, and the USB drives that I have, Data Traveler 3.0. Oh yeah, I know that one because it literally says Data Traveler on the side of the thing. Elements uh, something something. Yeah, I actually know which one that is. That's the the little mini external hard drive that I keep some stuff on. Yes, I know exactly which one that is. So it gives you a lot of information, helps you identify it. And I mean, what can I say? When you're when you're messing around with hard drives, just make sure that you know exactly the hard drive that you are dealing with. It's so important. So many people ignore that advice and end up erasing really, really important data. Um, more often than not, I just remove... I mean, I can't always because some of the hard drives are internal, but I, I definitely frequently remove external hard drives when I'm about to uh, repartition or put a new file system on on some other drive. Like, I will remove everything because I really don't want to get that sort of thing wrong. I am starting, on my tower at least, I'm starting to get pretty used to all the different positions of the hard drives, so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm actually actually qualified at this point to 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 do risky things with my hard drives um, because I, I know the I know the, the letters that they go up to pretty much but and and again partition manager gives me a lot of data on them and that's very very useful so that's partition manager it's a really great application if you're not using a GUI interface for dealing with hard drives when you're formatting them and partitioning them and putting a well partitioning and putting a file system onto them, then then check out Partition Manager, really. I mean, unless you don't want to. You, you don't have to. If you do know that terminal commands better than me, and you use them all the time, then just keep using that, because parted is an amazing command. Uh, it took me a long time to realize that parted, you didn't have to actually use it interactively, because all the demos online are all interactive. Parted. And then you enter the interactive mode and, and and proceed from there. You can just use it as a command. So yeah, it's, it's a, it, you know nothing against parted, nothing against gparted, but partition manager is quite a nice application. Check it out the next time you're you're lost on how to just make a drive be the drive that you want it to be. Use partition manager. And next time you feel like you want a cup of coffee, go get a cup of coffee. In fact, taking my own advice, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. You do the same. We'll come back, finish up the show.
we're back with coffee. I hope I hope you have coffee. Um, I've got just the usual coffee. The 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 combination, the special blend of th- whatever beans were left in the bins at the uh, the bin store. There's there's this there's this bin store that I go to now, and I used to go to a different one over in I don't know Al- Alexandria, I think, and and now I'm going to the one in Dunedin, and it is there there. They're great because you you can just load up on you know dry goods and and there's no packaging you just bring your own packaging load up on dry goods and you're you're set for like a month it's it's, it's amazing but they don't stock sort of their bins quite as often as the other one did so basically everything I get now is a mixture of every uh, of 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 anything similar of the at the same price point so I never just get one kind of flour I always have like three different kinds of flour. I never get just one kind of coffee bean. It's a it's a mixture of whatever's left. By the time I leave that bin store, they're 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 completely cleared out. I don't know if they love it or they hate it. I can't you know. I mean, I'm assuming they probably don't mind. I mean, it's I do pay for it, so I mean, they probably appreciate that. But yeah, it's never they're never full. Anyway, um, the coffee is good. That that was the point. And I want to talk a little bit before we get back to the applications. I want to talk a little bit about the how to not be hyperbolic about this the war on the term open is that is that calm enough i mean okay so there's this there's this word that we we use in this sort of corner of software and we we call it open source or we call it free software or we call it free and open source software or we call it free libre open source software obviously if that doesn't convey a a, a sort of a, a semantics issue then yeah we have we're a little bit confused we are finding it difficult to express exactly the thing that we're trying to get across we tried free and people heard zero dollars we so then we kept saying free as in uh beer not something or another and and people still didn't quite get it we were trying we we've at the same time we've also tried open which which sort of had similar connotations but it had some exceptions as well it didn't really imply this other thing and so people didn't quite get that we tried libre because i mean heck if the english language doesn't express what we're looking for maybe we can just borrow from somewhere else and and that kind of works fairly well software full of liberty is essentially what libre is um but people don't quite understand it's it's a foreign word and and as 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 innocuous as that may seem to a lot of us um obviously libre isn't foreign for everyone some for some people that's exactly what they mean to say for a lot of english speakers uh that it just doesn't it doesn't doesn't compute so we definitely have a problem with terminology and we've had that since i don't know since the beginning and and that's may maybe there was less of a problem at one point i don't know but i i, I suspect not actually maybe let's let's allow for you know back in 1983 the concept of free software Maybe people got what free actually meant, liberty software, because they thought, well, all software is just shareware anyway, so why would it be important that this was zero dollars? Someone must obviously be speaking about the fr- the amount of freedom you inherit with that software, not the, uh, the the amount of money you save when acquiring the software. I don't know that that's true, but maybe. I mean, it isn't true that in the 80s all software was zero dollars so it seems like it must have still been a problem then but 
I don't know, maybe the culture was, was different. Well, the culture was definitely different. Um, either way, um, I've personally kind of settled on open source, not because it's any better than free software, not because it's better than Libre software. It is just, it, it has a lot of, it's got the power of recognition, which isn't necessarily a good thing either. I mean, there are problems with that. There are problems locking yourself into a term, open source, when, when that has a connotation, when people understand what that means. At some point, you might not agree with what that means and and now now what do you do i guess you you revert back to libre or free but let's just let's let's say that there's the term open and and it is often used interchangeably right or wrong with free or libre even and lately uh and and this is not a new problem either but lately there have been some some there's been a level of confusion, maybe, about sort of what open, like the term open, actually means. And it's come, bizarrely, from a lot of different angles, which is what has been surprising me. So the chat GPT bot, which now I've said out loud on my podcast, which is a real shame, um, the chat GPT bot is from a group called OpenAI, which you would think, that seems promising, that OpenAI, I mean, what else could open possibly mean? Well, actually, it turns out it could mean a lot of things, like not actually open. OpenAI is not in any way a an open source project. It is not a free software project. They just call themselves OpenAI, just, just cashing in on the recognition of the term open. Not open. Not open source. ChatGPT is not open source. There's nothing open about OpenAI, but but there you go. That's what they call themselves. They've got the domain, and therefore they are OpenAI, except they're not open. Now, recently, there was a big sort of drama uh, over in the Dungeons & Dragons world, which is relatively close to my heart. I, I'm a Dungeons & Dragons player, so this was kind of a big deal. It was an attack, uh, essentially, on the open gaming license, which had its own issues in terms of, you know, the, the concept of open. Um, it, it was a, the open gaming license is a, an intentionally restrictive license that is, at the same time, encouraging of open sort of source. So the open gaming license, I did a Hacker Public Radio episode about this, actually, with my friend McNallu, so if you're really curious about this, you can go listen to that. But I'll just sum it up real quick. Open gaming license allowed people to use uh, parts of their favorite games when they design their own games, but it restricts them from using other parts when the publisher of the game doesn't want those parts to be reused. So for instance, if you if you publish a, a game called Poker, and on the back of all the cards, you have a little cute little penguin icon named Tux, then you might use the open gaming license in this an imaginary scenario to say that people are welcome to use the the the, the way that you describe the game and and some of the the custom mechanics that you've come up with they can use all that stuff but they can't use the penguin logo on the back of the cards they have to come up with their own logo for their cards that's kind of the the premise of open gaming license but recently the company that 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 wrote the open gaming license 20 odd years ago decided that they were going to attempt to take it all back take it away discontinue it deauthorize it quote unquote whatever that means um there was a a, a there was a huge like almost industry changing pushback against this proposed change uh, i shouldn't say proposed change it was not proposed it was a threatened change and 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 the company has has 
quickly backpedaled and is now trying to recover, and hopefully it never will. But that offended me on quite a couple of levels, but, but in context of this podcast, it offended me because they were essentially attempting to uh, steal the term open. I mean, they'd used it in open gaming license in a, a fairly legitimate way. Like I say, it was for an open gaming license. I think you could argue that it was that it had provisions for restriction a little bit maybe beyond what you might think an open gaming license would have. You might think that that was a little bit strange. But still, the, the, the intent of the license was to encourage others to iterate upon someone else's product. And that was a big deal, especially in the context of that industry. It wasn't common for gaming companies to be talking about open source then at all, and, and even now is not a given. I mean, within the tabletop role-playing world, it's, it's not a completely foreign concept anymore because of this license and, and similar license that have risen up since then, like the Creative Commons license. But the, the, the idea of, of a major game publisher using an open gaming license really did alter the way the industry was was headed at least in, in the the legal official sense i mean you can you can argue that people didn't need a license to to modify things and so on but in terms of allowing other people to start businesses of their own based on sort of iteration on someone else's initial product i mean that was a big deal and for the company recently to attempt to kind of erase that and 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 essentially create a, a, a highly restrictive license with, with royalties baked in and, or, or something like that, fees baked in and, 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 and the removal of, of, op of anything resembling open source, but still calling the license an open gaming license, like a 2.0 or something like that, was really, really uh, rather terrifying to think that, that for millions of gamers or the couple of thousands who actually pay attention to licensing things, to, to all the those people, the concept of quote open unquote would rep would 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 mean closed. It would mean you you pay the company for the permission to do certain things within a certain uh, until you hit a certain level of profit. At which point you have to pay them more and so on. And that was terrifying to think because open having jumped industries from software to gaming, it's it's now got kind of a. A, a reputation to uphold and and if its reputation and definition is changed in one industry it could very well affect the other now once again this isn't a new problem this happened this has happened already remember open core the thing that software companies used to call their product that was literally the reverse of open it, it was everything around this central key component that's required to 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 make the software function everything around it is open source but the core component without which everything else is useless is not open so they called that open core they didn't want to call it closed core or restricted core forbidden core for for whatever reason that didn't seem to pass their marketing department's approval don't know why and don't you think like for once like i i don't i don't like marketing any 
more than the next person. But don't do you think that maybe if you if you run something by your marketing team and they say, I think that would drive all of our customers away, maybe philosophically there's a problem. But instead of sort of like addressing the philosophical problem, companies just just said, okay, well we'll change the the word forbidden to open. And it's hard it's hard for our human brains, I think, to not be tricked even just by that simple thing. Like it's forbidden. It's it's roped off. It's it's locked up. It's 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 off limit. Well, we'll call it open. Like to our human brains, for for many of us, that changes it. If it's called open, then then that then that's a lot less that's that's less bad than forbidden. Even though functionally nothing has changed, it is still forbidden. You st- you do not get access to that code. They have it somewhere that you cannot get to. You can't you can't get to that core component. They're going to give that to you as a binary, and you are legally forbidden to decompile it or to reverse engineer it. But we're calling it open. And so that makes the whole project seem actually kind of acceptable. And, and this, I mean, that I, I feel like open core actually has kind of faded away. I don't really see that term used so much anymore. And, and maybe, maybe it is being used, but maybe it's been changed a little bit to where it is actually open now. And the stuff around it may or may not be open like one of those community editions. You, you see that a lot, like GitLab, for instance. GitLab has a community edition, and it's got GitLab, I don't know, Enterprise Edition. Now, to their credit, the features in Enterprise eventually get round to, to the, it does filter down into community edition, at least for the most part. There might be some things that never got from one to the other, but but it, it's sort of a rolling thing, or at least it used to be last time I looked. Uh, I think, what is it? Pi PyCharm, I think, has a community edition, and then the the non community the, the the non open edition. Um, so so possibly the concept of open core has actually evolved a little bit in the past. I don't know five ten years, but at one point that's exactly what it meant, and 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 that was a problem, and it it continues. You know, the the term open continues to be kind of problematic. Now there is a a group online, opensource.org, the open source uh, initiative, and they maintain a definition. They, they have a definition of what open is supposed to mean, at least within the software industry. Granted, I don't know that other industries really know about OSI or care about it or would know to look for, you know, to it for guidance. And certainly nobody is obligated to follow the OSI's guidance. They don't have to say that, that they have the official definition of open source. It's just that they do exist. They do claim to have the official definition of open source and therefore if you want to join the group of the the huge groups of people who recognize that as the standard then then you can do that and i guess that's kind of part of the problem with with not having your own special word for something i mean i i understand the advantage of using a word that appears to more or less express what you're trying to get at open source is a pretty good term i mean it does describe a lot about sort of the source code i mean as people have pointed out, it's not necessarily spot on to everything that's necessary. And and it is largely, I think it's, it's, it's good reputation still exists today, mainly because so many people use open source licenses that 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 are essentially free license free software licenses that that's literally the thing that's propping up the open source definition i think if if people stopped using the gpl and the bsd license and the mit license and the apache license and all these these pretty solid licenses some more solid than others well some more preferable preferable than others um like gpl i think is in my book the 
the, the the preferable license. That's the one that keeps the big guys honest and the little guys able to continue what they're doing. If people stopped using those, though, and started using things that were a little bit more on the fringe, or that were almost open source, almost qualified for OSI definition, but not quite, then I think open source would, would suffer a reputation loss. And I do, I, I sincerely believe that it is all of our responsibilities to maintain that reputation. That's the only thing that's going to maintain it. Like, the other way we could go is that we could invent a word and say that's this word means these four things, these four pillars of software freedom. That's what this one word means. And if you have that one word on your software or on the box that you're selling in a store of software, nobody does that anymore, uh, on your website, on, on, the repo on the Git repository, if you've got that word, then that means that you are granting these four, these four rights. The ability to use software for any purpose. The ability to share the software, copy it, give it away, whatever, sell it. The ability to study the source code and the ability to improve that source code. That's what that term means, whatever this term would be. It wouldn't be free, it wouldn't be libre, it wouldn't be open, it would be some new, brand new term. It would be a made-up word. Because that's kind of the only way, I think, that you can really divorce yourself of existing interpretations of a word. Because whether we like it or not, the word open, that exists. That has existed already. That's not a, that isn't something that we actually own. It's something we've taken ownership of within a certain context. But that context is, is very much our context, open source software. We can say open culture, we can say open this, open that, but that's going to mean different things to different people. We, open gaming, that, that has its own meaning. But if we made up a word and said that was that that implies these four freedoms then something something different now so now we have something that we literally own but failing that because i mean that's got that's got a whole other set of confusion associated with it then people have to learn this term they have to agree with this term they have to agree that this is a a valid term to use in a sentence so we're using existing terminology but but that oh, that belongs to other people and that's that there's danger there and so we have to kind of safeguard across all industries we have to safeguard what that word implies within certain context when you're talking about open source software what do you really mean when you're talking about open gaming or open culture what does that really mean? What does that imply? What kind of rights does that sort of grant other people around you? It's really, really important to safeguard that, I think, because if we if we allow that to be eroded across any industry, then that's a threat to the software and, and the things that we love to do, the, the things that we use on a daily basis, the the programming, the, the 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 cool GUI apps, all of that stuff, it's only open source, it's only free, it's only libre, because we have decided what those terms mean, and we have decided to enforce it through the use of reliable, common, shared licenses. Okay, we. I didn't mean to go on quite that long. I have now. Next, we'll just play a really quick game. Pick Me. P-I-C-M-I. -I. That's the name of the game. Pick Me. That's the next one in the uh, list of software here. This is a hard game. When you open it up, it might remind you a little bit of uh, what, what Black Box, I think is what it was called. That really cool one where you, you're, you're theoretically shooting theoretical beams of light into a black box, and based on how it reflects and refracts, um, you, you figure out, oh, there must be an object here, and there must be an object there. So this one is not exactly like that, but it, it's a grid setup. Across the top there are numbers, across the left side there are numbers. The numbers represent clusters of, of, of filled-in boxes. So 
the whole grid is um, a, a radio box, essentially, or you know, a series of radio boxes. So you can click on you can click on a square to fill it in, or click on it to 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 deactivate it to not fill it in. So the numbers on the left and and the top, um, there can be almost any number of numbers. Like I mean not any number, but two, four, six, eight, ten. It's a ten by ten grid, so there could be ten numbers in theory. Well, I guess there would have to be eight numbers, actually. Okay, so anyway, the numbers tell you how many contiguous activated boxes there are in that row and in that column. And each row in each column has a number, or has some set of numbers. So for instance, I'm just gonna, uh, let's let's pretend like we have a very simple version of Pick Me, which doesn't, it's not an option, and it's a two by two grid. On the left, you might have a two, and on the bottom, you might have one. On the top, you might have one, and on the top, right, you would therefore have two. So in other words, you know that you would need to activate the top two radio buttons, because that's the only configuration where there could be two contiguous radio boxes in that first row, which is the, the top left row says two. The The bottom one only has one, so you know that there can only be one box filled in, and it has to be the rightmost box, because the top right column says that there are two filled in. Now I'm starting to doubt that I got the numbers right. Either way, the goal is to fill in the grid such that anytime you read across or up and down that row or column, you're seeing what it has proscribed, but that it matches up both, it's true for both the row and the column. So in this game, a 10 by 10 grid, I have 611. Now I don't know if that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then a blank, and then a 1, and then a one, or if, actually I do know that, don't I? Because I can't, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, in that case, actually that's a pretty easy one and I do have this set to easy. So, um, okay, so I know that it has to be one, two, three, four, five, six on, and then one off, and then one on, and then one off. That would be six, blank, one, blank, one. That satisfies that requirement. Let's go to a, a more difficult one. Here's one. Here's the one, two, three, four, five, six. The sixth row down is a one, one, and a one. Well, that means I could have one, blank, one, blank, one. It could mean that I have one, blank, blank, one, blank, blank, one, one, blank, 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 one, blank, blank, blank one. I mean, it just goes on and on, right? I mean, you got 10 boxes to fill in. All you know is that you have single boxes. You have singletons somewhere in that row. That's a, that's tough. Now, if you cross-reference that with a column, though, you start to get an idea, but there are a lot of columns. So, I mean, this top row, or this, this very first column, is a two and a one. Well, okay, I feel really confident that the first row is filled in at, at here that that's it's got to be a, it's six contiguous and then one and a one so it's got to be here so i feel very confident about that so the two one so that means that the next row has to be on as well right because this column has two contiguous boxes and then it only has one other box on its own just on its off on its lonesome so that could be the box on the sixth row or it, maybe it's not it could be one of the other ones that starts with a one so you go through this grid and you make you, you you make assumptions you make you make guesses you 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 make deductive you use deductive logic to figure out like i just did for that top the top two rows i know that if if i'm if i'm 100% sure that the first square is filled in and there's a 2 then the second one has to be filled in like it absolutely has to be which actually tells you that the next row 413 well it starts with four contiguous and i know that the second one has to be filled in so 
I can do that for exactly just there. And then there's a one off of it's lonesome, and then a three. Well, I only have enough boxes such that it's a four blank one blank three. So that row has to be correct now, and so on. So you just keep doing that until you get like what looks sort of like a um, kind of like a QR code. It's kind of a fun little design um, scheme, and and it does paint the your your scheme up at the top. And when you get it right, it colors in the blank spaces with white. And and the the, the boxes that you filled in show up as, as black. So it does, it looks very much like a QR code. Pretty sure it's not a QR code, though. I should try sometime to scan it. Um, anyway, it's a very cool, difficult game. I have I've done okay with it on easy mode, and that is it. I'm I'm sure I could do a harder mode, but I just, I, I feel like, um, I don't know that I want to spend the time deducing the position of boxes quite that much. Uh, I've got lots of other things in life to deduce, like the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And I think that's it for the show today. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open